We're at the very end of Revelation, and I want to turn you to, to, to chapter 22, verse 10. Uh, last time we were together, we kind of grabbed hold of these words and uh, pointed out how different they are than the words that we find uh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, verse 10 is where John is being encouraged not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And um, the word that, that's, that's used here, I love, it says, because the time, and the Greek word there, if you remember uh, from last time we met, is the word kairos, that the kairos time is near. And uh, one, of the, one of the great things that we hear from, from people outside of the church is, why do you Christians talk about the, the end is here? You've always said it. Well, it's true. You know, I mean, World War I comes and people got signs out. The end is near. You know, World War II comes. The end is near. And the world scoffs at that. And yet it's exactly what uh, God, through this angel, said to, to John is, the end is kairos, near. And the term kairos is different than a chronological word, right? Um, God doesn't measure time the way we measure time. And so when we sit back and we say, well, you said you were coming back, God, and, um, you know, the people who originally received these letters, whether it was the letter to Ephesus or Thessalonica, they believed, you know what, he could come now. In fact, Adam and Eve did. Right? After God said, I'm going to give you a seed, and that seed will crush the head of my servant, the very next child born to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were like, is this, is this the one? This could be him. Right? So here we are all of these years later, and we're still saying the end is near. Is the end near? Yes, because the word is kairos. According to God's timing, perfect timing, the end, the end in his time is, is very near. And, and I think because of the content of Revelation, we can say with, with a lot of certainty that uh, the chronological time that we have until uh, that half a time occurs it, it, it certainly reads, as you look at the different signs in Scripture that point to, you know, that, that Jesus pointed to, it certainly seems that even chronologically, it's safe to say, yes, absolutely, the, the end of time, that beginning of the half of time, is, is close. Uh, will it happen in our lifetime? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm not a person who tries to guess that um, or live in paranoia over that. Um, could it happen in my grandkids' time? Certainly, absolutely. There's a lot of stuff going on in our world right now that, in my mind, could easily begin what we would call that half a time period, where all of the stuff that we use to prop up our life and to convince ourselves that we're secure in life could go away like that. And all of a sudden, the world is in a, in a panic mode, a chaos mode. And I believe that will signal the beginning of that half a time and the coming of the end. During this time that, that we're in today, until, until Jesus does return, I think verse 11 is, is significant. I'm going to use a cross-reference here. He says, uh, during this time, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Okay? So during, during this time, when we're waiting, 
you know, for that, that half a time to begin. Um, what can we expect the world to be like? Well, you know, God is not absent this world. When we look around and we see evildoers still doing evil, in fact, in, in, in significant ways doing evil in our world today, he's not absent. What is he doing? He's saying, during this time, there will continue to be evil that's going on. And there will continue to be those who seek out righteousness, who seek to live under, under, my, under my son. And there will be holiness, the setting aside of our lives for God. And there will be unholiness. Okay? I think a great cross-reference for verse 11 I was going to have you guys look at is um, in Romans uh, chapter 1. Uh, you kind of get this picture um, of what the world looks like leading towards uh, that, that beginning of the end time. So look at Romans chapter 1. Let's go over there real quickly. And I'm going I'm to just start and make a couple of comments at verse 18 and then take us over to um, the close out of that um, chapter in verse 26. In, in Romans chapter 1, of course, this is just the, the opening of the book, and, um, and Paul is kind of setting the table. He's trying to encourage the church in Rome and um, uh, encourage them really to be faithful to the Word of God in a context where you have two, two barrels aimed at the church. It's a double-barrel shotgun. You've got, you've got the, the, the Roman culture that comes against Christianity, and then you have the, the Jewish people who are coming against Christianity. And, um, and Paul is trying to say, in the midst of, of the war that's going on against you as Christians, just hold on to and live under uh, faith, right? Live, live a life out that continues to take the gospel to the world, uh, no matter what attacks are coming against you. So in verse 16, you get those famous words, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, yes, to the Jews and to the Greeks, to these people who are aiming the gun at you, who, who would love to exterminate you. We're bringing this thing called the gospel. Remember that the Greeks, the Romans, listened to the gospel and they thought it was foolishness. Why? You Christians are talking about somebody who, uh, some God who died well, that's foolishness. Why would you want to worship a God that died? God can't die. What kind of God do you have? They thought it was foolishness. Did not make sense. You're going to talk about a resurrection? What are you talking about a resurrection for? That's foolishness. Okay. For the Jews, the Jews looked at it and said, you're talking about coming against all of our history. And all of our practices in the church, they, they both hated it. And, and what Paul said is just continue to take the gospel out anyway because the only way we change lives is through what? Is through this word. And then you get this beautiful quote from, from uh, Habakkuk. The, the righteous will live by what? By faith. And uh, the world that we live in is then described, beginning with verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unga all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. 
It's the times that we're living in. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men. It's kind of interesting that that word for, for wrath uh, in Greek is orge. And uh, when you look at its, its history, both outside of the Bible and inside of the Bible, uh, you get this picture of a God who says, on one hand, in Revelation, let the evil still do evil. But on the other hand says, as that's going on, the wrath of God is not absent. It's present. Okay? Wrath is something that our culture wants to dismiss. We want to get rid of it. We, we, want, to, we want to, in America, we want to have a feel-good kind of religion, even, even inside of a lot of Christianity today. And so we, we, we kind of downplay the whole of what sin is. You know, well, yeah, I made a, I made a, I made, I made a little moral misjudgment. What's that? Was that swimmer's name? I might, I might have exaggerated. No, you lied. <laughs> After you committed evil, right? How? What is that? But it's the way our world works, right? We want to say, no, really. Everybody is going to go to heaven because God is a loving God. No, God is a loving God, but he's also a just God. And he says that, yes, the evil will continue to do evil. Guess what? I have a wrath that will come against those who are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, I think that, it's, I think that we, we need to recognize it's what puts the fire inside of, inside of me as a Christian today. It puts fire inside of me. And that's all along what Revelation is meant to do for us as a church. It helps me recognize that when I walk out the door on Monday into this beautiful island, I love living on the island, uh, but I know that on this island there are people who do not know Jesus Christ. Now, what will happen to them if they die? Uncovered by the blood of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God comes against them. There is hell, right? And so there's a fire inside of me that says, we, we cannot afford in any way to be silent about who Jesus Christ is and what it means to belong to him because this is, this is real stuff. So when Revelation says, let the evil do evil, he's, God is not saying to the church, well, you know, just let them have at it. No, it's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He says, people are going to continue to do evil. But I'm sending my wrath against that. And so what is our role as, as a church is to do what? Is to bring this gospel that changes lives uh, to, to our world. And um, I think that, that puts fire inside of me. Skip over to verse 26. Here's what's going on. There comes a point in time, there comes a point in time, when God says this, you're, you're not responding to my love, you're not responding to my lie, my wrath, and so here's what I'm going to do. Turn you, turn you over to the sin that is engulfing your life. I, I've always counted verses 26 and following as some of the, the most convicting words in all of Scripture uh, for us as Christians. He's describing the evil ones who continue to do evil. Here's what he says in verse 26. For this reason, God 
gave them up. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Okay? For their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay? I'm going to come back to verse 28, but just kind of listen to this for a minute. Here's what God is doing during these end times. My wrath will come against those who are uncovered by Jesus Christ. In the meantime, until I come. Here's what I do. God seeks to draw people to himself through the gospel. There are those who do what? Push it away, push it away, push it away, push it away, push it away. Here's what God says. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn them over to their passions, to their evil. And guess what it's going to do in their lives? Create misery. Because he desires to use that to bring people back to himself. Okay. Um, we recently had kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting scenario here in our church, um, following the uh, massacre in Orlando. And so one day we turned on our televisions and we all heard about you know this gunman who shot all these people in this homosexual gay nightclub. And, you know, the, the, the day after that happened, I could almost hear s some elements of, of the Church of Jesus Christ really misrepresenting God's Word by saying they deserved it. Let them die. They're gays, they're living outside of God's will, they deserve that. No, no. There's no, not one ounce of God's heart that would say they just turn them over to that. That's, that's, not, that's not our God. Okay? There, there's, there's other elements of the church that say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, that's, God made them that way. They, they love each other. Just let them be who they are. That, that, just, that doesn't represent God's word. But instead, when God, when God watches human beings, and, and in this case, I think it, it fits our text, and they're living completely outside of his will, there are times God says, I'm going to turn you over to your passions, and guess what's going to happen? They received in themselves the due penalty of their sins. It creates problems for people. And why? Because I want to draw you back to myself. There's a part of that turning over where God is seeking to do what? Bring people back to himself. I thought it was beautiful when we were given the opportunity here in this church to, uh, to, to watch uh, the Comfort Dog ministry participate in actually going to Orlando. Okay? And um, I don't think Mo would be upset with me for saying this. I, Mo stopped in my office and we had a conversation. He says, well, there's part of me that just... It just kind of goes inside your stomach. You know, we're going to be going and we're going to be ministering to people who are living outside of God's will. So, yes. Go and minister to them. Minister, the, the word under minister, latriuo, is what? To serve. To serve someone. Serve them. Let God open doors. And he will. For rich conversations with people, and know this that before you ever showed up, God's already been at work in these people's lives. He's trying to draw them to Himself. So listen, 
Watch for the opportunities. Have those rich conversations. Who are we? We plant seeds of the gospel. We water them. But we let it go after that because it's only God that can change a heart. And he is trying to. Let those who do evil do evil. It doesn't mean God is just going, well, yep, they're all evil, so let them do it. No, God actually is using what's going on in their life to try to draw people back back to himself, right? Now, I'm going I'm to make the next next statement. Go to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled up with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, and ruthless. If, if you haven't kind of caught on to it, they're pretty corrupt, right? Now look at verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Here's the second half of what I want to say is, let the evil do, do evil and the good continue to do good is what the angel is saying to John. He's saying, in these end times, God is doing what? I'm turning people over. I'm seeking to draw them to myself. But there comes a point in a person's life. We cannot measure it physically. There's no physical signs of it. We cannot measure it spiritually because the Spirit is only seen by the Spirit. But we know that there can come a point in a person's lives when they do what? They cross over this line and they are no longer redeemable. Okay? It's one of the hardest things for me to acknowledge as a Christian pastor because I want to believe that every single human being on planet Earth is redeemable, no matter how bad they are, no matter what they've done, right? If somebody said to me, Saddam Hussein, is, was he redeemable while he was alive? I, me, I would want to say, yes, he is. He is redeemable. There's no human being that's not redeemable. That's not true. It's just not true. The fact of the matter is that there are human beings on planet Earth today that are not redeemable. They have already crossed over that line where the Holy Spirit is now pushed out of their lives and they commit the sin against the Holy Spirit that's caught up in this, this word, that they know God's decree. They not only continue to do evil, but they give approval to those who also continue to do evil. And so now God not only turns them over to the, to the results of their sins in their body, but God actually turns that person over to now moving from disciplining them Disciplining always has as its end goal what? Bringing you back to punishment of them. Punishment is the unredeemable human being who God has turned over to hell. Now, here's the bottom line. I will continue to live as a, as a Christian treating every single person that I meet as redeemable. We have to. We must. Why? Because I don't know when someone crosses over that line. I can't know it. It's not visible to me. It's only visible to 
the Spirit of God. And so, and so no matter who it is, no matter what they've done, I desire to say, I'm going to, to love you with the gospel of Jesus Christ till your very end. But I do know this. I do know that there are human beings, God knows them, who he said, unredeemable, turned over. Because they know and they've committed against the Holy Spirit the sin that is no longer forgivable. And uh, so again, when I, when I look at Romans, you really pick this up, don't you? That this is, this is what the angel is saying to John is, during this end times, things will get worse. Uh, all of these words, ins insolence, haughtiness, ruthlessness. I mean, there's, there's some, God, some guy running around, I forget what city it is here in America right now, just shooting people. I'm like, my goodness gracious. Ruthless stuff. Is that person redeemable? I don't know. But you know what? If I met that person today, I would treat him that way. I would say, I want to, I want to share with you that, you that the life that you're living is not the life God created you for. Right? I would want to bring the gospel into that person's life. Why? Because that's how God has, that's what God has called the church to. So don't misread these words in the Revelation when, when John is, is hearing from the angel, let the, let the evil do evil, the filthy be filthy, the righteous do righteous. He's simply saying, this is descriptive of the end times until we reach the end. God is not going to just stop evil doing. Why don't you just stop this guy that's shooting people? Just stop him. He says, no, the, the evil will continue to do evil, and I'll even use that to bring people to myself. And um, so it's just a picture of these end times uh, that we're in. Go to verse 12. So he says, Behold, I am coming soon. I am bringing my misthos with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. Okay? I'm going to come, all right? And when I come, I'm going to bring my mystos with me, okay? Um, in a lot of your English translations, the term mystos is translated with our, our word um, recompense or reward, all right? Um, in other words, God says, I, I'm going to bring what people, um, what people have, have earned when I return. Uh, those who are righteous, those who are unholy and unrighteous, okay? Um, I, will, I will bring that with me. Kind of a side highlight, you know, when we do a funeral, it's always interesting. I, I, I always challenge Christians. I'm like, I know it's a hard time, but listen to the words that get spoken when your body gets lowered into the grave. And imagine your children are standing there as you're going down into the grave and here are these classic words that get read. One of those words is, the Lord will recompense to those that which they have earned in their body. And I think to myself, whoa, what did I earn? Well, apart from the, apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, what did I earn? The wrath of God. What did, I, what did we earn because of the blood of Jesus Christ? Here's the golden crown. Behold, well done. 
because we are covered underneath his, his blood. And so he says, I will come at the very end. You will see my justice here, here on earth. Okay. And then you get these majestic terms. And they, they actually are used in a very specific way. He says, on the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Do those, do don't, don't all those things mean the exact same thing? I mean, just kind of listen to it. On the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. A, a trinity of statements. Do they mean the same thing? Yeah. And no. They, they kind of are spotlights shown upon the different aspects of who, of who Jesus Christ is. I am the Alpha and the Omega shines the spotlight upon what? Upon the fact that he is outside of creation. Before it, and when it is destroyed, he is the one who remains with whom we'll live forever. The Alpha and the Omega. He is what? Our creator. I am the one who created it all. I'm outside of it. The object of your worship. The king, as we would say today. I am the first and the last. You know what it points to? The creator, this points to actually the salutary work of Jesus Christ. I'm the first human being who lived on planet Earth without sin. I'm the first human being who died and rose again, never to die again. Everybody who follows after me under my blood will experience the same thing. I'm just the first one. I'm the first one of you. Quite often, quite often this is why Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of creation. Right? Um, I am the last. I am the last. The last, the last man who will stand upon planet Earth is the one who will come again. Uh, Jesus Christ on the last day. And so it's really pointing to, you have the creator God, you have the redeemer God expressed in that uh, statement. And then he says, I am the, the beginning um, and the end. And it's really the beginning and the, and the end of what? Of, of new life forever with God. And I like to point to it as the ultimate expression of what we call sanctification. So you almost have a Trinitarian statement here that points to God as creator, God as redeemer, and God is the one who in, in our lifetime here, right, through that daily, you know, we talk about it in our message today, through that daily death and rebirth is making you new, right? Christians get confused by this, by the way. They're like, well, I got a brother, he says he's a Christian. Man, you didn't act like a Christian. I'm like, well, uh, yeah. Why? Well, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that a light switch goes off in your life and all of a sudden you're completely different the next day. You're not, right? Yeah, you are. Because the, the day before, you're what? You're, you're not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. When I come to know Jesus Christ, when, I, when I'm converted, I'm different than I was the day before. But what about my behavior? Does it all just change the next day? Not really. Not really. That's why um, 
You know, the preacher, sometimes preachers get some crazy stuff. Of course, Terry, you know this. And, and especially around funerals. That preacher had the guy come to his office. He says, he says, my brother died. He says, I want you to bury him. Pastor goes, well, everybody knows your brother. Your brother's like a smoking, cussing, women chasing. You want me to bury him? He says, he says yes, sir. He says, I got a $500,000 check right here. He says, really? He says, yes, sir. He says, all you need to do, he says, I want you to bury my brother, and I want you to tell people he was a saint. What would you, what would you do? So the next day, the preacher gets up in front of the casket, and the congregation, they can't wait to hear what he's going to say. You know what he says? He says, well, he says, we're here to bury old Brother Bob. He says, I'll tell you what. He says, all of us know it. We know he's a smoking, cussing, girl chasing, no good rascal. But I'll tell you what, compared to his brother sitting over there, <laughs> he was a saint. <laughs> write the check. Yep, write the check. The beginning and the end. Yeah, I mean, really what he's pointing to is sanctification is um, that process begins with Jesus Christ. But we, we are finally, we finally, and I look so forward to this. I was telling somebody today, I look forward to having a new body. Really, I do. But the thing I look forward to the most is, don't you hate it that inside of you is that old man, I, I want to sin. I, I do, I want to sin. We, we say we don't, but we do. I've always told people, if you, if you look at Luther's prayers compared to Calvin's prayers, you will understand the difference in theological systems. Calvin, evangelicalism today, their prayers sound like this. Dear Lord, I desire to follow you today. Dear Lord, I desire to give my heart to you today. I desire, I desire to love you today. With, with, I, desire, I, want to, I want to honor my wife and my marriage. I want my kids. I'm just going to love my kids. This is Luther's prayer. Dear Lord... I want to blow up my neighbor's mailbox. <laughs> Just bugs the heck out of me. And my kids need a good whooping. Why do I feel this way, God? I can't, I can't seem to shake it. I can't change it. And I, honestly, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to be like this. Would you put me to death today? Put that stuff inside of me to death today. I'm going to cling on to your cross today underneath your grace and I'm going to hang on for dear life because I don't want that to be part of me, but it is. That's the difference between the two. I love the fact that the Bible says he's the beginning and the end. He starts sanctification in our life, but it won't end until that day when we're on new earth and guess what he takes away? The desire to sin. We no longer have it. There's nothing in us that says, I want to be king. We don't have that. It's all released. And we rejoice in being his subjects forever. And I look forward to that probably more than, than anything else. Okay, let's, let's close for this.